Father, you gave us a command about the gospel and about spreading it around the world. And the gospel will not kneel, nor will it faint. Lord, you are still moving. There are places around the world today where we are seeing people come to Christ as in when Peter preached. We don't see it much here, but that doesn't mean that you're not working. And Lord, we do pray for a revival. We pray for a time when we would be restored as a people, as a church. Father, we thank you. We praise you for, for who you are, three in one. We give you glory. We give you the praise that's due your name. And we pray that all of our words, all of our music, all of our volunteer service, our presence here, would give you the glory due your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. One of the, uh, one of the most intriguing uh, stories in British history is mutiny uh, on the bounty. Many of us are familiar with that uh, story. Uh, but if you're not, let me, let me review it for you for uh, just a moment. The, the events that led up uh, to it and after the mutiny have been subject of uh, numerous uh, books, even uh, originally, of course, uh, investigations and court cases. And uh, there were people put in jail, people died, people hung, and so forth. Innumerable articles. In the last 80 years alone, there have been five movies uh, made about it, three of uh, which were commercial successes. So what was the story? In 1787, in November, the HMS Bounty, HMS, depends on who's in office, right? If it's a king, it's his majesty's ship. Or today, her majesty's ship, HMS Bounty, uh, set sail from England to Tahiti to gather uh, breadfruit. Now, apparently, I don't think I've ever had any breadfruit, but, but breadfruit is, uh, was, at least, perhaps still is, the staple food uh, in the South Pacific. You can roast it, you can bake it, you can broil it, you can fry it, you can dry it, you can ground it into flour. I could probably go on if, uh, like in... Uh, Forrest Gump with Bubba Gum Shrimp. It is a versatile food. But in April of 1789, mutineers led by acting lieutenant Fletcher Christian took over the bounty from Captain Bly. And Lieutenant uh, Christian uh, forced Bly and 18 loyal crew members out onto a, uh, a lifeboat and set them adrift in the middle of the South Pacific. And in just a rare display of seamanship, that lifeboat, with those 18 plus Bly, so 19 people on it, traversed in 49 days, 3,600 miles, and made safe harbor in Timor in the East Indies. Now, some of the mutineers remained in Tahiti because they were convinced that when they set Bly and crew in a lifeboat off in the middle of the South Pacific, 
that that was a death penalty. No one would come after them because no one would know. Well, were they surprised when British ships showed up and arrested them and took them back to England to stand trial, where I've mentioned some of the uh, things that happened from that. Meanwhile, there were other mutineers who thought, what if he gets away? And besides that, we've killed a bunch of Tahitians and they're killing us in the night. This is not a good thing. Let's go. So they killed a few more people. Not a nice bunch, I'm telling you. And uh, they kidnapped about 20. A few men to do the hard labor, uh, but mainly uh, women. They put them on the ship and off they went about 1,500 miles west to an island that they found, Pitcairn Island. And they got there, and they began to settle the place. But before long, if you've ever know anything about Lord of the Flies, uh, that's what you ended up with. They were doing a lot of killing and a lot of trouble. They just gambled, partied, drank all day long, and they fought. Soon, some of the fighting was over some of the women and such that the Tahitian men that they brought over there decided to kill Christian in revenge. It wasn't something that he did, but it didn't matter. He was the leader, so he was killed. The killing continued until there were only a handful of them left. Among the survivors of that wretched time was a man by the name of John Adams, And in desperation, he took the ship's Bible that they had salvaged when they had scuttled the ship. Actually, they burned it and scuttled it. Down it went. But in desperation, they tried to salvage the community to gain some sense of order. And he began to read the Bible. And as he did so, he began to believe the words that the Bible said. And in believing that, he began to act on those words. And then he began to teach the Bible to the remaining mutineers who were still alive. And they came to Christ. And then he began to teach the Tahitians that they had kidnapped. And they came to Christ. And it was soon that they all were believers. And it changed the Bible The teaching of Jesus Christ changed their lives. Some 18 years after that, the United States rediscovered Pitcairn Island. And it was a model community. There was no jail because there was no crime. They loved God and they loved one another. The book, this book, changed their lives from rough, tough, murderous people into men and women who loved God. You want to know what's wrong with our society today? It's because this is no longer a part of it. We're coming up on two years now since the beginning of our COVID-19. What a, what a two years. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm just going to mention a few things, try to put this in some kind of perspective. Additionally, the West 
has seen a sea change. If you don't know what a sea change is, but you've heard the phrase before, it's what happens when you put something at the bottom of the sea and you come back and check it two years later. does not look the same. And this sea change over the past 40 years is unlike any in all of human history. You almost have to go back to the Tower of Babel to find something that measures along with it. And yet we just think, oh, things are changing. William Manchester, the historian, wrote, The erasure of distinction between the sexes is not the only, only the most striking issue of our time. It may be the most profound issue the human race has ever faced. To top it all off, Russia is poised to invade Ukraine. And NATO, read United States, is considering military action. So whether it's health, whether it's social evolution or revolution or devolution or war, things are difficult. We live in difficult times. One of the particularly nasty post-World War I uh, developments was the fall of modernism. Not that that was the greatest thing in the world to begin with, but it was sure better than what we have now, which is post-modernism. While there's no definition held by everyone in general, post-modernism is an attitude of skepticism towards any meta-narrative. In other words, what that means is there is no story. When we talk about the greatest story ever told in postmodernism, it does not exist. There was no creation to recreation. There is no story. Your life has no story. Not that has meaning. It's just whatever it is that you do is whatever it is that you have done. And that's all there is to it. Any purpose you create yourself. Any truth that you hold, you created that. You made that yourself. The simplest way to look at it, there is no meaning outside of the little meaning that you can conjure up in your little brain. There is no absolute truth with... (laughs) I I always love these things. With, of course, the absolute truth that there isn't any uh, absolute truth. There, there seems to be little in the world that would calm our hearts. Certainly not mine. I, as I've mentioned before, I didn't even watch the news anymore. I record a couple of programs and that's it. Yet amid all of this instability and uncertainty and unrest, one thing remains unchanged and unchangeable the word of our living God. And that message never alters and it never fails, whether it's on Pitcairn Island or Sugarland, Texas. The Bible is always up to date and it always speaks to the issues of our time. It's the most precious object that we have on earth today. All of you have heard of Daniel Webster. You've looked in his dictionary from time to time. He wrote this. If we abide by...
by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we or our posterity neglect it and its inner instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. Yeah, I've never thought of Webster as a prophet, but perhaps I should. In a world that no longer believes in truth, the Word of God stands as a continent in the midst of a chaotic and violent sea. I mean, when I see that imagery in my own mind, I'm reminded even of of Genesis 1, where the Spirit hoovers over the face of the earth that's formless and void for creation. And I, I wonder if even now the Spirit of God is hoovering over us, and perhaps we are closer to the new creation than we first imagined. These are the kinds of thoughts that Paul thought. They're not original with me. I've just simply brought them into our times. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, if you have your Bibles open there, we're just going to be looking at about four verses. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we have a, a marvelous verse about the Word of God. He writes, and we also thank God constantly for this. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I mean, what a profound statement of truth about the word no other verse in the bible tells us so clearly that the word of god comes through people humans like a, paul even though an apostle was a man an ordinary man with an extraordinary calling from god and it is from god his word and it has the power to change our lives. I mean, Paul stood up among the people at Thessalonica and he began to speak to them. And as he spoke, they realized that there was something more. There was something more in his words than simply the next guy coming through preaching. There was something that he was declaring that they were hearing and it did not come from man. They were attending to the word of God, and that's how they received it. Of course, this gives us a great challenge in many ways, because since the garden, Satan perverts all things good. Uh, Everything everything that he, he is so malevolent and so malignant that he touches it, he destroys. That's what he is, and that's what he does. And this is no different. I mean, given that the word of God comes through ordinary people, guess what people try to do? They try to pass the things that they say off as the word of God. This is the word of God to you. And they're not quoting the Bible. 
they're quoting their own mind, their own opinion. So it's easily imitated, or at least attempted. I mean, false prophets claim that they're phony words of the Word of God, and all you have to do is look through history. You don't have to look very far back either. People are telling you, this is what God says, and then they give a prophecy. This is what's going to happen, and this is when it's going to happen. And there's a long parade of, uh, of that, of those who claim to speak for God. And, and listen, while we are undoubtedly in the final chapter, let me just say, uh, of God's redemptive history, let me just say that, that God is the timekeeper. He hasn't let anyone in on when he is going to act. We must not set dates for anything, and we must not listen to those who do. Now, the related question here is, is, is how can we tell when God has really spoken and when we're hearing from some false teaching or uh, false uh, prophet? Thankfully, uh, the scripture doesn't leave us alone here. It gives us some help in this regard. First, remember that, that God's actions in the world always agree with the words of Scripture. And that includes the words of Scripture will always agree with the words of Scripture. So you have a continuity with the words and reality, the reality that you see, the reality that is in your life. Who in here does not believe? And I would invite anyone who ever heard me say this, and I would say this to anybody, that there is, we won't even call it sin. Something is wrong in the world. Something is wrong in your life. The Bible calls that sin. You may call it something else, but what you know with absolute certainty is it's not as it should be. It's not as it could be. And this is what's left of the garden in our hearts and in our souls. We yearn for the day when there is a new creation. The Bible claims clearly God is the author. He is the creator. And that all the forces in the world are under his control. He is the king. He is Lord of all over history and over the affairs of humanity. And since all of that is true, then any truth that is spoken from either the word of God by way of teaching or as someone saying that they have something from God, will correspond with all of that reality and all of that history. If someone promises you something that the word of God does not promise, you can immediately know that you're talking to someone who's either ignorant or worse, a false teacher. Furthermore, if a self-proclaimed prophet predicts an event and it does not happen, they are a false prophet. Let me tell you what the Bible says about this. You get one shot. That's it. 
A prophet speaking from God is never wrong. I mean, think about it. How could they possibly be wrong? Who are they speaking for? God. God cannot be wrong. We're talking about 100% accuracy here. I mean, measured by standards that we hear, most of what we hear is ridiculous. Second, there's another way to test reality, and that's found in the phrase in verse 13. The word of God, which is at work in you. The word of God, which is at work in you. The word of God changes you. If you cannot look over the past year and see some change in your life towards God in a positive way, not merely memorizing, not merely accepting intellectually this is what it is, but change in your life, then I wonder if you're reading the Word of God. I have to wonder that about myself. Am I reading the Word of God? Because the Word of God will change my heart in ways that are perceptible. It will make us different people. It was true for the surviving bounty crew. It is true for you and me. Hebrews 4.12 says it this way, For the Word of God is living, it's alive, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, by His Word, permeates our mind and examines and evaluates those things. It's the Word of God that does that evaluation because I'm telling you what, I don't trust my own. I have to go and say, you know what, I don't like this. I don't even agree with this. But you know what? The Word of God says this. And thus it shall be. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. We don't follow our own mind on this. We follow the Word of God. If you've got to reprove somebody, think it through carefully. Carefully. Is this just your way or the highway? Or is this the word of God speaking righteousness? Third, Paul says that this life-changing word has another remarkable power. And that is this. It can often arouse violent opposition. I mean, listen to what he says. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, every generation, every century, 
we've seen this happen. Depending on what your context is, you may have seen this up close and personal. Christians have been persecuted and martyred from and ostracized and minimized and pushed out of economic life, however you want to describe it, since the beginning of the church. And for the sake of decorum, in this context, I, I will not speak of the horrors that Christians face even today, this very day. But why the violent opposition to the word of God? Because of its power to bless and transform. First, if there's anything clear from Genesis 11, it's this, the Tower of Babel. If there's anything clear from Genesis 11, it's that we are totally self-centered. Get over it. (laughs) Because the only way you're going to get through your own self-centeredness is by putting Jesus Christ in the center of your life. That is the only solution. Everyone comes to Him through faith in the Son of God because God is absolutely unimpressed with us. He's totally enamored and in love with us But he is unimpressed by what we do. If you think what you do is going to earn merit and favor with God, you need to rethink that. He, it does not impress him one bit. Your tenure, your position, your wealth, the trappings that you have, whatever it might be, there is one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself even said, No one can come to the Father but by me. John fourteen six, You may believe in God. I'm telling you right now, when I came to Christ, it was a fire insurance policy, not for Christ, but because I believed in God. I came to a belief in God first. You know what my thought was when I came to believe in God? I am in deep, deep trouble. I need a way out of this. And that was through Jesus Christ. God insists this is the only way that you can be reconciled with him. And that makes a lot of people angry. Because they want to be able to do it myself. Second, closely related to that, but is distinguishable from that, is that it exposes that pride that we, that we have. We try to hide it. But it, we may even think we're servants. We may even think that we're meek and mild and humble and all of that but if we say god i i don't need your help that's hubris that's that is excelled excessive pride of the highest order as as some have said pride's the only disease that makes everyone else sick except the person who has it there's a third reason why the the gospel arouses Opposition, and it's a little more subtle. It's a little more insidious. It's probably a little more what we might experience here. That's what I call elder brother's blindness, i.e., if you go back to the prodigal son. What's that? The gospel has the power to forgive those who have sinned so horribly that we would celebrate that they went to hell because they deserved it. 
because they were so terrible. Think about how offended the Pharisees were when Jesus received adulterers, when Jesus received prostitutes, swindlers, outcasts. And at the same time, they, the respected moral ones, the ones who needed no guide, were excluded. But that is the very glory of the gospel. It can change anyone. It can change you. It changed me. And the last thing that I want to look at is, at least to me, very poignant. Paul says that God sometimes has to take severe measures to awaken people to the situation. I mean, if, if you were listening as I read that text, I mean, Paul... Probably the only time that you hear Paul talk exactly in this way was thundering like one of the Old Testament prophets about the wrath and the judgment of God that was to come upon the disobedient Jews because they had caused so much suffering to the believers. He says, For you also have suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And then he goes on to say, but wrath has come upon them at last. I want to combine this passage with another passage. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Some people think that Paul was overstating the case. I don't think that he was. I believe that he believed that with all his heart. And I fear that 2,000 years of church history has blinded us to the fact that the Apostle Paul has blood on his hands. He knew it. He knew he deserved the wrath of God that he was calling from God onto these disobedient ones, but he received grace. And many commentators miss this, at least in this text. Paul is not saying, finally, I mean, look at your text. If you're looking in the ESV, it says, has come upon them at last. That's not what it means. We know from Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, scores of other places that Paul has compassion and mercy and understanding and grace. This is not an exclamation of, it's about time. In fact, I prefer the reading. If you have a King James, you'll see the reading that I prefer, a New American Standard Version. At last is better translated as fully or utterly or to the end. So what does that mean? What it means is this, Paul takes no joy in this. Paul knew what was coming. God has in great patience allowed them to, as the text says, fill up the measure of their sins. Listen to me, God will wait for the last moment for you. He will wait until the final possible moment 
And he will save if one turns as he saved Paul. Paul knew that God was not Zeus hurling thunderbolts willy-nilly around vindictively of judgment. He gives us every chance, every chance to wake up. And if we do not, there will come a time when he will keep his word. Now, these, are, these are sobering words, but they're also meant to encourage us. I mean, just a month ago, we shared the Christmas story and gave thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior. I mean, it, to you who cannot save yourselves, for us who understand this, that this is not a work of our own will or our own mind, this is a work of God in us, then to you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let the incarnation, that is Christ among us, be life to your soul. Like John Adams, you would not think it to look at me now, But there was a day when I was angered by those who would preach the gospel to me. I was an atheist. I did not believe in God. How could God allow such things? In my universe, people destroying one another because of hate and envy and jealousy and pride and power, stupidity. At the time of my salvation, I smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. And I would, and I am not, this is not hyperbole, I would flick not only the ashes, but the burning embers into the faces of those who would testify of Christ to me. I drank to get drunk, not high throw my drink on them. Turn the other cheek, I would say, hoping, hoping the whole time that they would fight. Paul took no joy in what he said. Like Paul, trust me when I tell you, I take no pleasure, none, in telling anyone at any time that God's wrath awaits one day. But that does not make it not so. Paul could no more close his eyes and not see the faces of the lives that he ruined than I can close my eyes and not see the faces of the people that I openly ridiculed and challenged to fight. Many of those that I did ridicule were transferred to other units. And I'm just saying, won't they be surprised (laughs) when they get to glory? (laughs) Because I'll be there, not because I was good, but because Christ saved me. My plea for you today, if you don't know him, won't you join me? And if you do know him, 
share the gospel. It's one of the only things that he actually commanded us to do. Father, we are deeply grateful for who you are, what you have done in our lives. We stand amazed, truly, that you have given life to any one of us, much less an entire community. And we pray that with our lives, with our words, we would be able to share you with others, and that your word would make such a dramatic and marked change in their lives that it would be seen as a miracle. Through Christ our Lord, amen.